Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. Happy New Year. I'm Rose Scott. We'll begin with this. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. And there's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, uh, that you've recalculated. It's the phone conversation now heard around the world. As first reported and made available by the Washington Post, President Donald Trump's phone conversation pressuring and badgering Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to change the state's general election results in Trump's favor. What effect will this have on the upcoming January 5th runoff races, which, of course, are tomorrow? We'll hear local reaction. I think the big thing, the big challenge will be getting it out. It happened so late. This came out on a Sunday afternoon for your average person in South Georgia or in the suburbs or anywhere outside of metro Atlanta. The question is, will they hear it? And so for Democrats, they have to figure out a way to get it out there in a way that does not seem nonpartisan, just let people hear hear the story as, as it is. You know, I know Senator David Perdue personally and Senator Kelly Leffler personally. And I think it's hard to believe that they would use the same language or urgency that we see coming from the president. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, speaking of the runoff elections, both President Donald Trump and President-elect Joe Biden are in Georgia today for some final hour campaigning to help their respective party candidates. Now, President Trump will attend a Northwest Georgia rally for Senators Kelly Leffler and David Perdue. That's in Dalton, Georgia, this evening. Earlier today, former Georgia governor and current Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue spoke on the senator's behalf. By the way, Senator David Perdue will not be campaigning in person after coming in close contact with someone who has contracted the COVID-19 virus. President-elect Biden is scheduled to attend a drive-in rally in Atlanta this afternoon. Leffler's opponent, Reverend Raphael Warnock, campaigned in his hometown of Savannah Sunday alongside fellow Democratic candidate John Ossoff and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris joined them. Meanwhile, more than 3 million Georgians have voted already, either by mail or early in person. Mail-in ballots now must be received by 7 p.m. tomorrow night. Polls are open tomorrow from 7 a.m. until 7 p.m. In the other news, the United States and Georgia are in the midst of what many public officials call the third wave of coronavirus cases. On Saturday, John Hopkins University recorded a record-breaking number of cases in one day, Nearly 300,000, in fact, 299,087 to be exact. This is the highest number of cases reported in a single day. And here in Georgia, newly confirmed cases, well, they continue to increase. At the time of this broadcast, 587,076 COVID-19 cases in total have been confirmed here in Georgia. 
42,483 people have been hospitalized. Of those, 7,466 considered ICU admissions. And since the state began recording these numbers way back in March of last year, 9,893 deaths have now been confirmed. This is always according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. And there's more coronavirus-related news, so let's turn to WABE health reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Sam Whitehead. Sam, as always, Happy New Year. Thanks for taking the time. Hey, Rose. Happy New Year. Thanks for having me. Let's begin here with the latest surge of cases in Georgia, but nationwide now, it's a mix of up and down activity. Right. We, we have seen things really uh, continuing to grow here in the state of Georgia. This is something that, quite honestly, Rose, public health experts who watch this kind of thing said we should expect. We've seen cases surge after other major holidays, starting over the summer with Fourth of July. We saw things grow after Thanksgiving and we'll likely continue to see the fruits of people traveling and gathering for Christmas and New Year's over the next few weeks, right? Um, It's important to remember, though, it does take some time for us to see cases from events, say, like New Year's, right? Mm -hmm. It takes time for people to get sick enough to go get tested, then to get sick enough to need to go to the hospital. So I would guess we're going to continue to see more cases from this holiday period. But you mentioned the kind of nationwide picture. We have seen parts of the country that as of late, the situation has improved there, while in places like Georgia, the situation continues to get worse. This is a perfect time to remind people that, you know, pandemics are not monolithic. A lot of times these are pretty local incidents. We can see some states doing better while other states are doing worse and then even get more granular than that some counties performing better than than other counties across the country. And Sam, so with an increase in newly confirmed cases, which could lead obviously to an increase, not 100% obviously, but lead to an increase in the number of hospitalizations, that also is continuing to rise in Georgia. What do we know about hospitals and their capacity to handle this increase of new patients? You know, Rose, it's, it's interesting to look at the numbers. So I've got this pulled up here, our data dashboard we have at WABE tracking these kind of active COVID-19 hospitalizations by day. And people might remember how dire things seemed over the summer when we had our kind of summer surge of infections and hospitalizations here in the state. We are now well past that. Um, and, and the issue with hospital capacity, Rose, it's not necessarily Does a hospital have enough space? Does a hospital have enough beds? What it really comes down to is does a hospital have enough staff to work those beds? You know, someone who is in an intensive care unit needs around the clock care from a healthcare provider. And you have to think, Rose, we're in 2021 now, it's a new year. Some of these frontline healthcare workers have been doing this work, this very intensive, dangerous work for close to a year now. Imagine how burned out they are. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to hospital capacity, I think it's it's really important for people to think past, does a hospital have, say, enough ventilators or enough beds? Those, th- those are certainly important resources but staffing is really the issue. And this was something that, you know, the heads of Atlanta's big hospitals and hospitals across the state were expressing concerns about even before Christmas. They said, you know, in a call with the governor in uh, December, late December, that staffing was already going to be a challenge and was going to continue to be a challenge. So, you know, I'd have to imagine that that's only gotten worse now that our hospitalizations have, have really kept rising. Well, Sam, if that's the case, What have you been able to uncover or have you heard from hospital officials how they're trying to deal with these staffing challenges? 
Well, you know, Rose, it's important to, to note that staffing was a challenge before the pandemic, right? Um, you know, this is kind of, I, as my sense is, it's a perennial problem in the healthcare space. You, you know, you have to have orderlies, you have to have people there to change bed linens, you have to have trained nursing staff, right? There are so many people that keep hospitals and, and all healthcare facilities running. <laughs> and even before the pandemic, keeping those positions filled, my understanding was already a challenge. Now, what's happened with the pandemic, um, I mentioned earlier, some parts of this country are seeing worse outbreaks than others currently, and that's kind of fluctuated over the course of the pandemic. We saw early on when things weren't very bad in Georgia, uh, healthcare workers from Georgia being pulled up to New York City, which was being really, really hard hit. Um, so there are things like staffing agencies, you know, nurses kind of freelancing and, and, and moonlighting, um, going to places that, that are hardest hit. But what some hospital executives said in late December here in Georgia was that they were concerned that there certainly that, that there just aren't enough healthcare workers in the country where you know Georgia, which was kind of behind some other parts of the country and seeing this latest spike, their concern was those nurses, those healthcare workers would be tied up in other parts of the country and that Georgia would kind of be at the back of the line when it came to getting those people down here. And we've heard so many reports, Sam, of personnel coming out of retirement or delaying retirement just to help. On another note here, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, he is allowing for the Georgia World Congress Center to act as sort of an additional field hospital to help alleviate the strain on hospitals. But we're just talking about a few dozen patients that will be housed there, correct? Yeah, my sense, Rose, is this is a this is a facility that that's been opened now for the third time. Um, it was opened very early on in the year. Um, it was opened again during our summer surge. Um, and was reopened again just before Christmas, um, something that I kind of figured would happen at some point. Um, you know, this is a facility that Grady Memorial Hospital here in Atlanta has really uh, taken leadership of. My sense is Grady is the one running these beds. And these are for people who have mild to moderate illness, right? People who are not bad enough to need an ICU or say to need to be on a ventilator. Um, my sense is that we've never had more than, say, a few dozen patients um, sent over to the Georgia World Congress Center site. But again, we're at a very different point in the pandemic than we've been at before. It's not clear that just because there were only a few dozen patients who needed that facility in the past, that doesn't mean there won't be more this time around. And Sam, before we shift to talk about the vaccine, I just want to also get your thoughts. Do we know if there will be any additional measures implemented at all at this point? You know, the governor just re-upped his latest executive order um, at the end of December. Uh, it currently lasts through January 15th and kind of doing a scan through it. Not really much has changed. And this has kind of been the governor's posture as the pandemic got worse over the summer, um, as it's gotten worse over the fall and into the winter, was to really push this idea of personal responsibility. Um, he's been really hesitant to put, say, a stricter limit on the number of people who can gather rather pushing this idea that you, the individual Georgian, should take steps to make the situation better. He's asked people again and again and again to do the right thing. You know, Rose, it's it's unclear to me how bad things have to get before that changes. You can look at our situation here in Georgia, uh, the way that things have really grown over the last few weeks. And I don't think it's a stretch to say asking people to do the right thing might not be working 
that well. Mm. And Sam, just before the holiday break, Georgia Department of Public Health Commissioner Dr. Kathleen Toomey and Governor Brian Kemp had talked about, yes, we are distributing doses of the Moderna vaccine to the staff of senior living facilities. What other populations will be next? Yeah, great question. There was some news on that last week. Uh, Adults aged 65 and older Law enforcement officers, firefighters, and first responders were added to this kind of first group of people to be first in line for the vaccine. That news came from Governor Brian Kemp and Dr. Kathleen Toomey last week. Um, So an expansion here in Georgia of people kind of first in line to get the vaccine. Now, the expanded kind of Now, making that group larger doesn't necessarily mean that Georgia has more vaccines available. My sense, Rose, is that it really does depend on where you are in the state, Um, that, you know, there are some parts of the state, rural Georgia, that might have surplus vaccine. Um, Here in metro Atlanta, um, some of our local health departments have actually links where you could say, go and try to sign up to get vaccinated online. Um, But, you know, a quick check of a few of those websites, like, you know, the Fulton Board of Health and the health department that covers Gwinnett, Newton and Rockdale counties, they currently have no appointments available for the general public. So Mm. even though this group has been expanded, it's really still important to stress that it's going to take some time for even people in this first group to to get vaccinated. And of course, Sam, now with the vaccinations underway, that means an additional metric must be added to the state's public dashboard. Dr. Kathleen Toomey did say that they will release data on the number of vaccines available statewide. Is it showing up as of right now? Yeah, it is. And this is, again, an, an effort from the Department of Public Health, which I think is valuable. It's to be transparent with how the state's doing on how many vaccines have been allocated, how many have been shipped out, how many have actually been put into people's arms. Um, you know, there's also some good information on here answering some basic questions about the vaccine. You know, does the vaccine contain live coronavirus? No, it doesn't. Those kinds of FAQs that the general public is going to have. You know, I, I think it's important to keep in mind, though, Rose, I, I think the the issue with putting out, the issue with people kind of tracking number by number, how many vaccines is the state giving out? I I worry that it creates the false expectation about how quick this process will be, right? Mm -hmm. If you see, oh, the state has given 100 more vaccines today, I would imagine for the, you know, average listener, they think, oh, well, you know, when am I going to get mine? When am I going to get mine? And I can imagine people obsessively kind of watching that number. Um, It would be great to see something on this dashboard from DPH really stressing that it's going to be a while before the vaccine becomes widely available to the general public. So while it's great to have these numbers out there for accountability, again, we just can't stress enough that public health officials have said again and again, it will be well into this year before the general public gets access to this thing. Sam, any idea how Georgia's vaccine distribution plan compares to other states here? You know, great question. This is something that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has actually set up a pretty cool dashboard tracking this. Um, and essentially it says how many how many vaccines has a state administered um, in total and then per every 100,000 people. So Georgia's not doing so hot. The latest figures from the CDC says Georgia has given about 75,000 people their first dose of this vaccine, of these vaccines. Again, these are two doses vaccines. Um, The CDC says that's about 708 people for every 100,000 people. That is worse than almost every other state in the country. So 
The CDC says Georgia is really falling behind some of these other states when it comes to actually getting these vaccines out to people. And again, it will be something to watch over time to see how that develops. But at least a few weeks into the rollout, it looks like Georgia is not doing that well. And finally, Sam, as we wrap up, it's New Year. What's in store for the podcast? Did you wash your hands? I think about a few things. Um, First, we are now in a new year. And we're going to be in the next few months getting to some one-year anniversaries of some pretty big events. Mm -hmm. And so one thing I'm looking forward to is actually checking back in um, over the course of this year with people we talked to last year to see how they've been in the last year. These are people who, who, who got sick with COVID, people who lost family members to COVID, just to kind of see how this pandemic is, is playing out for them a year into it. You know, we were talking about the vaccine rollout. Um, you know, if we look back at other things over the course of the pandemic, say how well the state of Georgia was able to um, roll out testing, how well the state of Georgia has been able to contact trace, those are things that have been a little bumpy. And so I think it'll be really important to watch how smoothly the rollout of the vaccine goes. My guess is that it's not going to be very smooth um, just because of precedent with other things in the pandemic. And then finally, Rose, you know, we have a vaccine, um, but I'm also really interested to watch how the pandemic progresses over the next few months. We know that we can do things before we get a vaccine that will make things better. Wearing a mask, avoiding large gatherings. You know, I'm interested to see how bad things get before the state, before state leaders step in and say, put more restrictions in place. Um, I think if we look at the trajectory of the pandemic here in Georgia, you know, we've seen some kind of reporting lags over the holiday period. Um, But my prediction is that you know, things are likely going to get worse before they get better. So that's another thing I'm watching is, you know, how bad do things ultimately get now that the coronavirus has been with us for a year? And, and you know, what what do things look like before state leaders take more action to uh, try to improve the situation? And in case someone is wondering, the Georgia State Legislature is scheduled to convene on January 11th of this month. As always, Sam, good talking with you. WABE health reporter Sam Whitehead catching us up on the latest coronavirus-related news. And you can also catch Sam as host of the WABE podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? When is your one-year anniversary for Did You Wash Your Hands? So uh, we will hit our one-year anniversary on the 18th of March. But I will say, Rose, there was a period in you know late January, all of February 2020, where I was paying attention to the coronavirus and it felt a little, you know, I felt like a little bit of a crazy person um, because I was walking around telling my friends and family members like, oh, this is about to change everything. Um, So it was something I was watching well before we started the podcast. But yeah, March the 18th, 2020 is when we set sail on this journey, which at this point still has no end in sight. Yes, and you made several appearances right here on Closer Look before the podcast even began. So you've been you've been on this for a long time and we greatly appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Rose. Thanks for having me. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at CF 
greateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Tomorrow is Election Day, in case you didn't know that. Now, as mentioned earlier, President-elect Joe Biden and President Donald Trump are both scheduled to visit Georgia today to offer last-minute election eve support for their respective parties. Now, as of this past Sunday, more than 3 million Georgians have voted either in person or by absentee ballot for the January 5th runoffs. That's according to the nonpartisan online database, Georgia Votes. At stake, well, the outcome will decide the balance of power in the U.S. Senate. But on the eve of this election, there is a related big story. It actually relates to a story that just won't go away since the general election back in November. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. And there's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, uh, that you've recalculated. There's more to that. And, of course, tomorrow's runoff elections. Joining me now to discuss this, as they have so many times before, Atlanta-based political strategist Fred Hicks and Corey Ruth, CEO of Mergence Global. Thank you both for taking the time and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Corey. Happy New Year, Fred. Although the Senate runoff elections are tomorrow, here we find President Trump once again the center of attention. As first reported by the Washington Post, Mr. Trump, along with advisors, were on a call with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. The president is pressuring Raffensperger to change the vote outcome in the presidential election, in the presidential election that took place back in November in his favor. Hang with us. Here's an excerpt. This audio made public by the Washington Post. We have won this election in Georgia based on all of this. And there's, there's nothing wrong with, with saying that, Brad. You know, I mean, having, the, having a correct... You, the people of Georgia are angry. And these numbers are going to be repeated on Monday night, along with others that we're going to have by that time, which are much more substantial even. And the people of Georgia are angry. The people of the country are angry. And there's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, uh, that you've recalculated. Well, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong. Now, do you think it's possible that they uh, shredded ballots in uh, Fulton County? Because that's what the rumor is. And also that Dominion took out machines. Uh, That Dominion is really moving fast to get rid of their uh, machinery. Do you know anything about that? Because that's illegal. This is Ryan Germany. No, Dominion has not um, moved any machinery out of Fulton County. We're having well, but no, but, but have they moved? Have they have they moved the inner parts of the machines and replaced them with other parts? No. You sure, Ryan? I'm sure. Hmm. Now, of course, you heard President Donald Trump. Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and Ryan Germany, who is general counsel for the Secretary of State's office. Fred, I'll start with you. Your overall reaction to all of this? 
like I hope many Georgians and Americans, I was appalled. I was sickened um, and quite frankly, uh, disappointed that this is where we've, uh, where we are in our, in our country right now. Not because it's a Republican president saying it, but because it's anyone who's sitting in that position, a position of authority, a position of, was supposed to be a position of moral authority, um, <clears throat> who still won't accept the most basic thing in our country that is an election and the results of the election and is peddling falsehoods and is now going from peddling falsehoods, refusing to accept it, to pressuring elected officials to change the election results. Corey, your overall reaction? I mean, it sounds horrible, uh, chilling. Uh, as as a uh, Democrat, small d, um, it's chilling. Now, I haven't heard the full context of the call. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. frankly, what we heard, um, what I've heard, uh, is not far outside of the pale of what we're used to hearing from uh, President Trump. I don't think he's saying anything differently on this call than what we can expect him to say. Uh, he believes he won this race, uh, particularly in Georgia, and he, and he doesn't feel like the Secretary of State is supporting investigations or matching his energy um, in terms of uh, concern about fraud. Um, and I think you also have to throw into the mix of that. Uh, President Donald Trump speaks like a New York uh, um, real estate mogul and not like a politician. So, it, so he uses his words less carefully. But, um, you know, that aside, um, the context and, and the way that Donald Trump speaks in general, um, I, think it's, I think it's horrifying. And, Corey, let me stay with you for a moment because you, one of the few, and you're Republican, um, you have been on the show in terms of a strategist and also in terms of a voice for your party, one of the few people who have spoken out against what we're all hearing on this tape. If you haven't heard the full audio, but based on what you have heard, does it appear that President Trump is asking Brad Raffensperger to do something that is illegal and criminal? Just based on the context that I have, which is, you know, not the full context, like you said, it, you know, just taking those words, it, it does sound, uh, you know, quite uh, chilling. Like he's uh, applying some pressure on the secretary of state to do something um, to reveal some numbers that will make the state um, um, will reverse the, the election results. Um, and what, what, what I have been saying to, um, you know, Republicans who, who will listen to me, is that uh, questioning the results of an election, even questioning the integrity of election, is not new in American history. Um, what's new is that um, those on the Republican Party who would like to challenge the integrity of this election seem to want to do it um, within the same time frame as uh, appointing uh, a new president. And um, that's the difference. I mean, in, in every other uh, instance in the past, um, we've had, you know, lawsuits ongoing and they run on a separate track than the inaugurating of uh, the next president. And and so the language changes because of that, because there's a there's an urgency here that is not usual. And it's, it's an urgency to stop everything let's 
re-elect, uh, you know, redo the election or, you know, audit the election results. And, and so it's the urgency, I think, that's leading people to say some things that are out of the pale and also leading people to want some things that are um, definitely uh, not usual. Corey, does this help or hurt Senators Leffler and Purdue in tomorrow's election? You know, I don't know. I thought about that. Uh, I think I do think the American public uh, is is savvy on these things. But I'll tell you, the group that you know Republicans are most trying to solidify are, are suburban folks. And um, you know, if, if I take myself to be one of those suburban voters, you know, I'm I'm on the edge um, with this stuff, mm-hmm. and it's really driving me insane. I know. Uh, Senator David Perdue personally and Senator uh, Kelly Leffler personally. And I think they are, you know, really outstanding representatives for the state of Georgia. And and I think uh, I think it's hard to believe that they would use the same language or urgency that we see coming from the president. I think um, the voters that were sick of it, you know, made that known in November's election. and, and, And maybe they don't punish Kelly and David for that. I'm not, I'm just not sure. Fred, let me bring you back into the conversation. Obviously, Democrats have come out and expressed their views on this. Uh, President-elect Joe Biden will be in Georgia today along with President Donald Trump. For the Democrats right now, Fred, what do they do with this? Does this help get them additional votes come tomorrow? And if so, how do they do it? Yeah, I think the big thing, the big challenge will be getting it out. It happens so late. Um, if the story, if this had uh, come out on Thursday or Friday, they don't have enough time to make its way through the system. This came out on a Sunday afternoon uh, for politicals, so junkies, we saw it and we, we all had reactions to it. But for your average person in South Georgia or, um, or in, in, in suburbs or anywhere outside of metro Atlanta, um, the question is, will they hear it? And so for Democrats, they have to figure out a way to get it out there in a way that does not seem nonpartisan, just let people hear hear the story as, as it is. Um, that being said, you know, you always have two goals, really, If you and, and a third would be ideal. You have mobilization, you have suppression, and then you have the combination of both of those. And this audio has the potential to mobilize. It should mobilize Democrats without question. And it has the opportunity or the ability to suppress good, um, well, I shouldn't say good, but because um, they're not good or bad, but traditional Republicans who, who love America and, and are true constitutionalists, uh, the same people who did not vote for Donald Trump on November 3rd, but the 88,000 people who voted for David Perdue who did not vote for Donald Trump. And then the combination of those two. So if it gets out, I think it does have the potential to swing this election. Because again, we're talking about a very thin margin. I always say this on your show, Rose, that we're talking about a half a point to one percentage point. And that's 30, 40,000 votes right now. One, one point is 30,000 votes on 3 million. We have a segment coming up on tomorrow's edition of Closer Look, which will look at the traditional non-voter, folks who just don't vote at all in the past, but they may still be swayed to come out for tomorrow's election. So let me stay with you, Fred. Does this play a factor in all in getting that particular demographic, that voter demographic, to the polls tomorrow? 
I don't think it's going to necessarily get that. This will get that demographic to the polls. What it does have the potential to do is to get the newly registered people who were not eligible to vote on November 3rd out to vote. So if you're 18 and you're just coming out of high school and your civics class, oh, this is probably appalling. Um, if you registered for some reason because there's something that happened and on November 3rd that triggered you to get out here and get and get engaged, this can do that. But you know, people who don't vote tend not to vote because they they don't they just don't believe the system works for them. And I think many of them are going to hear this as, see, this is why I don't vote. America's just crooked. Politicians are crooked. So it, that group, it probably actually lessens the opportunity for them to vote or the motivation for them to vote. But newly registered voters, that, that's where you can see something happen. Corey, you just told us a moment ago that you know both Senators Leffler and Purdue. Uh, if you were advising them, would you tell them to come out and make a statement about this phone call? Oh, it has to be very nuanced. I think they, you know, politically speaking, you're just turning out your base at this point and then trying to neutralize those folks that are, say, sub- suburban that could swing their vote uh, in the other direction. Um, I do believe, uh, you know, I'm one of those suburban voters. I know we like to say suburban white voters, but I'm one of those suburban Republican voters that um, if I did not know Kelly and David would would be, you know, someone that could be picked over to the other side because of uh, uh, some of the things that are happening with uh, President Trump and then some of the calls for um, the way they want to handle this, uh, the election uh, challenges. Um, But at the same time, I'm also what would keep me from doing that uh, would be um, what I believe that, you know, Reverend uh, Raphael Warnock actually believes. So the question is whether my uh, frustration with Republican politics trumps my frustration with Democrat ideology. Mm-hmm. And at this point, um, if it matches what's going on nationally with Democrats, I don't see the suburban voters uh, switching their votes. Um, Warnock is, I think, a very scary fella from an ideological perspective for people like myself. Ossoff is not. Um, um, so uh, that's, that's an interesting dynamic because people will vote down the line, but those suburban folks might not. They proved that they wouldn't in November. Fred, your reaction to what Corey just said? You know, it's interesting. When I hear people talk about ticket splitting, and not that I think it's going to happen in terms of the uh, in terms of the election results, but I usually hear people say that they can vote for Warnock, but they struggle to vote for Ossoff. Uh, simply based on the commercials, right? That uh, the Warnock has mm-hmm. come across as being warm and friendly. I even want to talk with Repub- uh, my Republican friends and colleagues in North Fulton. Uh, they're like, gosh, you know, Warnock's commercials are just so much better. So I- I'm surprised to hear about that particular split, Corey, to be honest with you. But um, I'll tell you, look, Rose, the number one thing, or one of the two things that both Leffler and Purdue have tried to do since November 3rd is to distance themselves from Trump while while keeping themselves close to his voters. And so you haven't heard, I, I've not heard a single, uh, maybe one commercial from David Perdue where he, he mentions the word, uh, the name Donald Trump. We saw that they both tried to avoid the, the, the veto vote on the defense bill last week. We saw that they both came out and said they're in favor of $2,000 instead of $600. And I, you know, because they aligned themselves with the president but opposite of Mitch McConnell. So they've tried to till that line. And what this does potentially is bring, uh, the combination of the tapes coming out yesterday and then his rally today 
uh, in North Georgia is to tie them to him. But we know the numbers show that they, again there were 88 something thousand people, almost 100,000 people who voted for David, Donald, uh, David Perdue who did not vote for Donald Trump. A lot of them were in the metro area. A lot of them were probably your listeners. So this is the kind of thing that attaches them to it because he, he goes after Georgia Republicans on this. He's not. He's no longer just talking about what he believes to be the case. He is now pressuring Georgia to do it. And you know, Corey mentioned his nuance. He's, he, if they come out against it, left line Purdue, then they they run the risk of losing his, his, his the rabbit right. Um, and the far left is they're not going to vote for them no matter what. So what do you do in this situation when the battle is for the Corey Ruths of the world, right? Um, who who are not as engaged as Corey, but that's where the battle is in Metro Atlanta. Um, it's, for, it's for them, for Sandy Springs, for Roswell, Johns Creek, um, Kennesaw, um, you know, these, these these surrounding areas. So well, the president will be in Northwest Georgia, which is a GOP stronghold. The strategy there, because one could argue. Those voters already made up their mind. They've, they're going to vote Republican. So what's the purpose of the president being here? Better question, why there? Why not in those areas where they feel like maybe they need to garner more support? Number one, uh, it's it's safe ground, fertile ground. He likes to be with people who, who affirm him. So that that's that. But then number two, I don't think it's there's any coincidence that he is going to the heart of Doug Collins' area. And he definitely wants Doug Collins to run against either Raffensperger or or, uh, or or Kemp in 22. So this is also a rally and setting, setting the stage and setting the ground for for uh, Doug Collins post all of this, so February 1 or something like that, to announce what he's doing and to have a solid base of people who uh, in his in his own backyard who are getting ready to uh, for 22. So again, we're only we're, we're 15 months away from the primary, 15 18 months something like that. Corey, go ahead. That's a, a very interesting uh, point. Um, Fred, I also think there's a um, thread running through the base uh, that you can't trust the election, so why vote? And, um, you know, they need uh, the president to come out and and reassure his voters that the best way forward is to come out in large numbers. And so I think he's, um, you know, why Dalton? I, I, I defer to Fred on that one. That was really good. But but why the base? I think um, he got he has to reassure them um, that he wants them to, to you know continue to be engaged, even though uh, the election may have been stolen uh, in in their view. Well, here's in the other question because whether supporters of Donald Trump want to really admit it or not, the president will be leaving the White House. So what effect, and I want to get into moving forward, it is clear that Donald Trump will still have an effect moving forward on the upcoming elections in, in 2022. That's evident. That's very clear. I think the playbook is already there um, for um, sort of establishment Republicans like a Mitch McConnell. And we, we've seen this in 2010 with the Tea Party, right? So, um you know, I think the playbook is there. I think Republicans navigated that Tea Party movement really well. Um, they still um, managed to nominate a Mitt Romney, for instance. They still uh, managed to uh, put up some very sane um, uh, uh, legislation during that time. And, and, and those um, members of the Tea Party that were elected during that time are no longer seen uh, as being Tea Party anymore. So I think they'll they'll navigate. Now, Donald Trump is a much 
harder hitter than the Tea Party was, right? He's not just a movement. He's a personality. And so it's going to be tougher to uh, engage him um, and navigate his influences on things. But I, I think there's a playbook already in place. Well, we shall see. Tomorrow, of course, is the big day. Atlanta-based political strategist Fred Hicks and Corey Ruth, CEO of Emergence Global, thank you both for taking the time. As always, we really appreciate your analysis. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having us, Rose. We appreciate it. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. As we just heard from WABE health reporter Sam Whitehead, the Georgia Department of Public Health is keeping track of COVID-19 vaccinations. And according to the latest data provided to a new online dashboard, as of this broadcast, more than 76,000 COVID-19 vaccines have been administered throughout the state. Now, healthcare workers and employees of senior living facilities are among the first to be inoculated. But as reported, supplies of the vaccine, well, they are limited. Now, on a recent edition of the program, we checked in with John Sparks, director of the Partnership Health Center in Valdosta, Georgia. Our conversation focused on how rural health care systems will strategize vaccinating employees and even patients. Mr. Sparks, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's good to be here today. We know that so much is already made about the plight of rural health systems now comes in terms of this pandemic. What concerns do you have just overall about how these vaccines will be distributed in these rural communities? Well, availability is probably the biggest issue uh, in Valdosta, where we are. It's a larger community with greater resources than our outlying counties that are around us, and especially in southwest and southeast Georgia. And, um, and I know in our own situation, we had to jump through a lot of hoops, and we were thankful for those hoops with public health to, to gain access to become a, a dispenser of the vaccine. But when you've got communities that are smaller, with less resources and less contact, uh, then you know that, that can be a concern. But the, the good part about it is that public health is located in all the counties in Georgia. Mm-hmm. And so they are, are connected, but um, we'll see how fast the vaccine gets out to all these outlying areas. Well, let me ask you this, because obviously you're aware of, like everyone else, that the, the newly confirmed cases continue to rise here in Georgia. How is your region faring through all of this? Well, at one point we were a, a red county, a hot spot, and, but things have eased off. Things are, you know, we still have positive cases in our own clinic. We, we're a community um, testing site along with our local hospital. And um, we're testing people every week that are positive for, for COVID. Uh, it's, it's not gone away. It won't go away. Um, there's a, a reticence to be vaccinated that we're beginning to uncover, and um, which is surprising somewhat because uh, it is, a, a, in a sense, a flu vaccine. That's, you know, mm-hmm. It's not ones that have been around forever, but it's still in the same genre. And it's a little surprising that so many people are reticent to be vaccinated. Hmm. For our folks who may not be familiar with the Partnership for Health, now you're an urgent care clinic, but you all serve primarily uninsured or underinsured patients, correct? Correct. We, we serve only the uninsured uh, here in, in South Georgia and the surrounding counties. And most of our patients are, uh, are very sick people 
A lot of our new patients are discharged patients from the hospital who are uninsured, have no family doctor, and we become their family doctor for them. Uh, we're open seven days a week. We have four full-time providers, four part-time providers. Um, we see, see a lot of sick people. And, uh, you know, we do do the urgent care. But most of what we do is take care of very sick people. Activity. But let's talk about your employees, your healthcare workers, your employees in line to receive the vaccine. If so, when and how will all this begin? Well, we, uh, as we worked with public health to become a dispenser of the vaccine within our community. There were all sorts of forms and training that we had to go through. And we, uh, our operations director and our chief clinical officer went through all those different trainings. And of course, we filled out our forms to get the Moderna vaccine because it was a lot easier for us to store it. Mm -hmm. And um, and so we were just uh, waiting and biding our time, wondering when it was going to show up. And lo and behold, last week, Moderna showed up at our door uh, with 100 um, doses of the vaccine and uh, right before Christmas. <laughs> what a Christmas present. Absolutely. How were you all able to store it then? Right now, of course, the, the initial doses of vaccine are for our employees mm -hmm. and volunteers. And of course, that vaccine will be used within the first 30 days. And so we were able to store that in our own refrigeration units that we already have, that we keep sample medication and diabetic medication, that type of thing. We have data loggers attached to those uh, devices, so we know what temperature it stays at all day long, all night long, that type of thing. And, uh, and so we have ordered the certified refrigeration freezing units that mm -hmm. Moderna requires that we should receive in a couple of weeks. And that way, we'll be able to keep long-term doses of Moderna as we begin to vaccinate our patient population next. So you and Valdosta, will, is that where the refrigeration will primarily be housed? Or will you, will you be able to, to distribute those units to other parts of the, of the state here? And the refrigeration unit, the vaccine refrigeration unit, will be in our clinic. Okay. It's, it's not a large unit because those vials are not very big, so it doesn't take up a, a, a tremendous amount of space. But we'll be able to keep it frozen um, while we are working through our patient population. And for right now, uh, of course, we're doing our employees first and volunteers. The next phase will be begin with our patients. And then beyond that, it, uh, we should be in, you know, in partnership with the hospital to do more community-type vaccinating. How much do you anticipate you'll need, Mr. Sparks, when you talk about your patient population, because that's ongoing. Right. And initially, to get them all vaccinated, we, we would need probably around 6,000 doses of the vaccine, because it, it's two, two doses for full vaccination. Mm -hmm. We serve about 3,000 uninsured patients right now, and so we have to vaccinate them twice. So that's 6,000 doses. Have you been assured that you all will receive these vaccines in a as time as much as anybody has been assured i mean at least we've got the first hundred doses for um our staff and volunteers mm -hmm. so that's encouraging that we're going to receive the, the doses as it comes along especially uh, what was encouraging to me is you know, you know when you think about it we're a small nonprofit medical clinic that serves the uninsured. Mm -hmm. Who are we 
in the state of Georgia in the big scheme. We're nothing but a tiny little tadpole, but yet we have received the vaccine. So that tells me that things are moving faster and better than maybe most of us thought they would, Mm -hmm. which is encouraging. Mrs. Sparks, did you get the vaccine? Yes, I did. I was one of the first to receive it. Can I ask how you feeling? I want to I want to respect your privacy, but oh no, no! Listen, I'm an open book. I work in a nonprofit. Everything we do is a <laughs> is for public record. Um, yes, I took the the vaccine. I had no reticence about taking it. You know, of course, you you wonder, mm-hmm. um, but and did I have any side effects? Yes, I did. Um, I felt a little malaise the next couple of days, uh, but it wasn't flu like in a sense. Mm-hmm. It was just a little little dip in the way I felt, and today I'm doing great. And how important is it, do you think, that not only someone like you, but your health care workers who have been receiving the vaccine, perhaps if they could tell their story to your patients? Because there's still a lot of folks who might be a little bit on the, uh, the hesitation side, you know, not knowing. Right. But you all are some of the first in the state. So uh, are you optimistic that that will help maybe, you know, clear things up for some folks who might be just a little bit, you know, uneasy? Uh, and we've had to deal with that in, within our own employee population. We've yeah. got employees that are registered to get, you know, vaccinated. Obviously, we were not, we're not going to make them get vaccinated. That is You're not? Point. No, we are not going to require they become vaccinated. Why? We, we have, um, we've, we, in our situation, we feel like that is a private decision that each individual has to make. Mm-hmm. And at this point, there's no compulsion. Um we uh, we highly recommend it. We share our stories um, that that it's safe. But I understand the reticence, especially when uh, when you have a vaccine coming to market quicker than anything ever has before. It makes you wonder. But uh, I was not concerned about it. To me, the risk, especially you know, I'm a little older person, and uh, and those those risks are always there. And it was worth the risk to do it. And also to set set a standard for our employees, you know, that as a leader, uh, that's my job. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, it's, and it's been fine, no side effects. Um, and I hope that it continues this way as we move forward. And Mr. Sparks, other than ordering the refrigeration units, is there any other cost to the Partnership Health Center for you all down there in Valdosta? No, there's absolutely zero cost to us. And I know, and I know, as someone who probably has to look at the books every now and then, that's a good thing, right? Yeah, just about every day. <laughs> you have to keep you have to keep a, a tight lid on that. You know, as a non, every nonprofit has to really um, watch the income and outgo. And we're we're grateful that it's been made available to us and to our patient population. Did you all treat patients who had contracted the virus, Mr. Sparks? Oh yes, we mm-hmm. have. You know, we don't have. We haven't had. A tremendous amount because we're a smaller piece of piece of the pie here, mm-hmm. but um, we have patients who contracted the virus, and we keep track of them and follow them and stay in close contact with them. And we're we're thankful that the the vast majority have not had to be hospitalized, mm, and that's that, good. that they can be treated at home and ride out the, the the virus and come out the other side healthy. Well, let's end our conversation with some optimism here, as you. As we all head into 2021, what is your outlook, you think, for this, not just with the vaccine, but overall with this pandemic? And what do you hope changes come out of all of this or in general public health policy? 
Well, I'm, I'm hopeful because so many things have come to light. There's been exposure to so many different problems in our, in our society, in our communities, in our cultures. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that, that people will embrace the changes that have had to happen and will come out the side of being healthier in the long term. A lot of people have realized that there are personal things that each person can do to be healthier, to wear a mask, to wash their hands. When before we never thought about these things. And I hope that these things continue. I hope that our uh, legislators, now that they're far more aware of what a pandemic can do uh, to the state, to the nation, to the world, that they'll be far more ready to loosen the pocketbooks, to invest in change, invest in healthcare, uh, and, and also do the right thing for our economy. It's such a balance. It's not one thing or the other. Mm -hmm. And I don't envy uh, the position they're in having to keep our economy afloat while keeping our people healthy. But I'm hopeful that, in, that people will rise to the occasion. We've seen it already communities supporting one another, helping one another. And I hope that that continues to where we look after each other. Well said, that's a good way to end today's program. John Sparks is director of the Partnership Health Center in Valdosta and chair of the Georgia Charitable Care Network Advisory Council. Mr. Sparks, first of all, thank you for all the work that you and your peers and everyone in the health center what y'all been doing, not only just during this time, but over the years. Thank you. And then thank you for taking the time to be part of this conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash closer look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.